Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities with Public Schools Unite Us initiative and United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Governor Kathy Hochul this week signed into law a measure to make it easier for New Yorkers to access mail-in voting. But some New York Republicans, led by Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, have filed a lawsuit against the measure. More now from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt. Hochul, speaking at New York Law School, says all registered voters will now be able to request a mail-in ballot up to 10 days prior to Election Day. The ballots will come with postage-paid return envelopes, and they must be mailed back by Election Day and must be received by the local boards of election no later than seven days after voting. Hochul says it will make voting easier for average working New Yorkers, who might have to juggle jobs and caring for children and perhaps elderly parents as well. But today we're going to right the wrong of the past and say it's finally time that people can vote by mail. We saw it work during the pandemic. We can do this. And we know that everyday people are so busy. I just described what a day is like. And it's just, why not? Hochul says we can't take the continuation of democracy for granted. She points to the January 6th storming of the Capitol in Washington, which left five dead. And she accused some Republicans of engineering a sinister, slow-motion insurrection. She says the U.S. Supreme Court gutted the Federal Voting Rights Act a decade ago, and 29 states have passed voter suppression laws. As we're seeing all across America, the right to vote is literally under attack. I could not have imagined as a child that I'd be standing here as an adult having to say we have to fight to defend the right to vote in America. It is shocking. Republicans in New York, led by Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, have filed a lawsuit looking to overturn the law. They say that by signing the bill, Hochul is repudiating the will of the voters of New York. In 2021, voters rejected an amendment to the state's constitution. It would have lifted restrictions in place for absentee voting and enacted no-excuses mail-in voting. Stefanik, in a statement, says mail-in voting is less secure and that it unfairly benefits the Democratic Party, which she says is trying to destroy what is left of the election integrity in New York. Democrats argue that the law is constitutional because it allows mail-in voting only for early voting, not for Election Day. Senate sponsor Deputy Majority Leader Mike Gianaris says opponents are trying to suppress the vote. It will be opposed by people who don't want people to vote. Hochul also signed measures that would create same-day registration on the first day of early voting. Local jails will now be required to provide voter registration information to those who are being released from custody. And more comprehensive training will be conducted for poll workers. Hochul also signed a law establishing the date of New York's presidential primary. It will be April 2, 2024. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. The discovery of more than 30 migrants in a Rockland County home had officials once again taking jabs at New York City Mayor Eric Adams earlier this week. The Legislative Gazette's Jesse King with more. 
Clarkstown Town Supervisor George Homan filed a restraining order after at least 31 people, including children, were found in a three-bedroom, 1,500-square-foot home at 295 New Hempstead Road in New City. The Republican said code enforcers received an anonymous tip about the house and spoke with a few migrants in a nearby donation bin. Once they got access to the home, officials discovered what Homan described as a, quote, flop house with several mattresses, overloaded electrical outlets, and children sleeping in the garage. Holman went through a slideshow of pictures from the scene at a press conference Monday. This would have been an absolute disaster had there been a fire in this house. People would have died here. First responders would have been injured or killed. Homan said law enforcement had only just made contact with the owner of the home, Shalome Coppell of Muncie, on Monday. While the investigation is ongoing, he described many of the home's occupants as undocumented from Ecuador. He said some of the people interviewed by police had crossed the southern border into the U.S. as early as two weeks ago and came to Rockland County by way of New York City. The situation drew a fiery response from first-term Congressman Mike Lawler of the 17th District and Rockland County Executive Ed Day, fellow Republicans who joined Homan for the press conference. Both men appeared to speculate, without evidence, that the House could be tied to efforts by New York City Mayor Eric Adams to bus asylum seekers to hotels upstate. Day called on State Attorney General Letitia James to investigate the movement of migrants across the state. I believe it's human trafficking. I believe there's money involved. I believe it's illegal. And while she's at it, she should take a look at if it ends up that Mayor Adams is involved in this. My, in my simple mind, there are a number of court orders that he's held to. If he's violated those court orders, he should be held accountable. Spokespersons for Adams and James did not respond to requests for comment in time for broadcast. Homan said law enforcement is still investigating exactly how the home's occupants arrived in New City. The press conference did encapsulate the frustration felt by some upstate officials over not just New York's migrant crisis, but the broader immigration crisis as well. Day was one of multiple county executives to declare a state of emergency when Adams announced plans to relocate migrants earlier this year in an attempt to alleviate a strain on city resources. Rockland County currently has an emergency order banning outside municipalities from establishing shelters or temporary housing in its community without permission from the county. According to the order, any hotel operator or person who violates the order can be fined $2,000 per violation per day. Despite that, Day said Monday, the county is still feeling the effects of the crisis. I don't know more I can say at this point. Um, we have a 35% increase in foster care. A, a nonprofits are assisting three times the families of the state did a year ago. Rockland County is still funding our pantries because we try to be humane. Being humane does not mean shipping people from one borough or one county to one state to another. That's what is being done now. It's not being done by us. Day said he wouldn't be surprised to discover more shelter operations at homes across Rockland County. Lawler pointed the finger at Governor Kathy Hochul, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, and ultimately the Biden administration for not doing more to stem the flow of people across the southern border and into New York State. He specifically called on Schumer, a New York Democrat, to take up H.R. 2, a bill passed by House Republicans earlier this year that would resume construction of a southern border wall and tighten restrictions on those seeking asylum in the U.S. We sounded the alarm on this issue. We were called all sorts of names uh, by my Democratic colleagues. They called us racist. They called us bigoted. We were raising the alarm because this is unsustainable. And people are going to get hurt as a result. Governor Kathy Hochul has called on President Biden to help by providing federal assistance and expediting work authorizations for asylum seekers in New York. Democrats met for what Hochul called a, quote, very productive conversation in New York City on Tuesday. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Jesse King.
You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. This week I spoke with Republican Assembly Minority Leader William Barclay about his call for a special session to deal with the influx of migrants in New York and the Republicans' five-point plan for dealing with it. Well, I hope the public pressure is starting to uh, heat up a bit on elected officials. I think uh, we all recognize the fact that this migrant crisis that we're facing in New York is a federal problem, but that doesn't mean that on the state level we just stand by and do nothing. And so myself and my colleagues in the Assembly uh, Republican Conference and in the Senate Republican Conference and others have called for uh, the legislature and the governor to act on it, because we do see it as a crisis. As you know, David, I think as of a couple of weeks ago, the number was something like 110,000 migrants have now come into yeah. New York State. And it's causing stress on the system, particularly in New York City, where they have the right to shelter law. Uh, I've heard some crazy numbers of what that is costing the city, but the state's already spent $1.5 billion. Uh, there's estimates that it's going to cost upwards of $12 billion. Uh, so, you know, it's causing some real stress on the system, and uh, we can't wait for the federal government that doesn't seem to have the will uh, to act on this uh, to do something. So we think it's uh, prudent for the state to go back to a special session. Uh, the governor said that she was open to it or was considering it, but said uh, they want to have a plan on what to do in that special session, and we're happy to provide a number of policy ideas uh, that we could undertake if we did uh, go into session. I think that what we are proposing are some very common sense, not overly partisan uh, solutions to this. And we always recognize, I've said this from day one, we don't have a silver bullet that's going to solve this issue. But again, the federal government's not doing anything. It seems to me um, the state ought to do something. Well, let's deal with a couple of the points, because you did mention you have what looks like a five-point plan here. One is to require New York State to register all migrants in order to assist with background checks and monitoring refugees seeking asylum. Is that something New York can do? Well, I think we can do it. We should uh, do it. First of all, just as a little way of background, to get asylum in the U.S., to get a hearing on that, and that's how most of these migrants are coming in, they're seeking asylum. Uh, the hearing takes four and a half to almost five years uh, to get resolution of that. In the meantime, there's really no um, way to document who these migrants are and where they are. And it seems to me it's sort of a common sense, uh, good uh, policy. Obviously, New York State knows where its citizens are. I'm not sure why we shouldn't know where the migrants are, too. And again, if the federal government's not acting, why can't New York State act on this to make sure at the very least we have them registered so we know who's in the state? The third point on your plan, ensure funding is not used to shelter migrants in schools, daycare centers, or community-based organizations. That's a hard one, isn't it? I mean, schools started. You've got, as I understand it, many of the migrant children being welcomed into schools, and a lot of that money is coming from the state. Right, but that's where some of the most controversial is those areas of where they're trying to, and this again, very New York City-centric issue, but uh, they're trying to put them in schools. I was down in Queens and uh, saw where the migrants were being placed in a school area, and it's causing, again, causing great stress on that system. You know, that's something we could go back and discuss where the best place is to try to locate these migrants and how it's going to be paid for. But right now, it's sort of willy-nilly. The mayor's running uh, around trying to find a place 
to put them. The governor and the mayor tried to uh, uh, have them come upstate. Uh, upstate wasn't prepared and didn't have the infrastructure in place to accept them. So there was a lot of pushback uh, there. So it seems to me, you know, that begs a question of why aren't we acting to try to find, at the very least, a place to locate uh, these migrants and how is that going to be paid for? It's certainly not fair for us to try to push that on to uh, localities that simply just don't have the resources or the infrastructure except, you know, huge, uh, huge numbers of influx of migrants. Yeah, and I think there's no denying that as politicians fail to come up with proper solutions and solutions that they can enact quickly, like, say, allowing some of these migrants the opportunity to work and contribute to the state's economy, that we're left with ultimately these people and these children hurting, stuck in a spot, and none of these problems resolved. So people get hurt in the end. Absolutely. I readily admit this isn't a good situation for the migrants, not good for our communities or our citizens, but it's not good for the migrants either. So something ought to be done. You know, the one other point that seems really just a good government piece of policy that we are proposing is how about auditing how the money is being spent? There's been a lot of back and forth. You've heard it with the doc go, a lot of, um, you know, contractors that contract with the state. And we're not sure how that money is being spent. Wouldn't it be good to have that audited by the controller, a Democrat, uh, and have that audit findings released to the legislature and the governor? Uh, there's something, you know, and by the way, we, we would we would like to see this on a lot of different programs. It's not just the migrant and the money being spent here, but that's what we're, you know, focused on today. But again, that just strikes me as we're trying to find solutions that are overly partisan that will actually help the circumstance. And that's how we came up with these proposals. And that one, I just can't imagine anyone being against that. But I guess in the world we live in, it sometimes gets very partisan and proposed by a Republican. It's tough to get done. We're talking to Assembly Minority Leader William Barclay, a Republican. Yeah, isn't it interesting that if you're unorganized and this situation has not been handled well, I think everyone can agree, that it gives more ammunition to those who are fearful, who would say, we don't want the other, nimbyism, not in my backyard, something bad's going to happen. Yeah, well, I, can, I can't speak for everybody. I can speak for me personally. Uh, you know, we've seen a huge, tragically, a huge outward migration out of New York State, uh, particularly strong in upstate that from a demographic uh, perspective has been hurting us. So it's not that, you know, I'm personally, I'm, I'm pretty pro, I am pro migration uh, and immigration. The problem is how this is going about. This is not legal migration. This is people coming across the border under the auspices that they're seeking asylum. And I would mention asylum is trying to get a safe haven from being persecuted, whether it's on political beliefs, you know, uh, 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 race, religion, nationality, all that. You know, I think that's probably a stretch for a lot of these migrants that are coming across that they're actually being persecuted by their home countries. I, I think it's more of an excuse to get in the country. Once you're seeking asylum in the United States, you can stay in the country. And I think that's a federal issue that ought to get cleaned up. I also think that we ought to, you know, it's got to be done on a bipartisan basis, but we ought to look at our whole immigration system. And there's nothing wrong with having people come to this country to find a better life. I think, you know, that's the history of a lot of our citizens here, but it's got to be done in an organized and legal manner and just can't be willy-nilly 
uh, people coming across the border claiming asylum and then disappearing into this country. I think that raises a lot of problematic issues and dangers, frankly. Well, and I guess from the your conference perspective, it's point number four, reverse the executive order of 2017 prohibiting law enforcement from cooperating with ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, to end New York status as an illegal immigration sanctuary. This plays right into what your point was. Yeah, this is a question I get. Why are they coming into New York? A lot of people have blamed the governors of Texas and Florida for uh, shipping the migrants here, which certainly is a part of that. But I would mention that federal government has been moving migrants to New York State for some time. But I think all the way back into the fall of 2022, they were flying them into the Westchester airport that got some coverage. So the migrants like to come to New York State for, I think, two reasons. One, because of that sanctuary state, and we have an even stronger sanctuary laws in New York City, but also for the right to shelter. And so that requires, so far, it's just uh, legal settlement, actually, that was back in the 70s that was trying to take homeless off the street. I don't think it was ever meant to provide shelter to migrants, but it's being used for that. You know, people come to New York State and they're, they're in New York City and they're guaranteed housing. That's a big plus, And that's why I think that's attracting a lot of migrants in New York State. So at the very least, we should clarify what right to shelter means. And then also this call for sanctuary city and state, one, I don't think that's good law enforcement policy, but two, I think it's attracting people to New York State that uh, may not otherwise come here. And I, I find it interesting, David, the fact is there's a real divide in the Democratic Party now because a lot of people that are supportive of the sanctuary policies by the state and the city now are getting pressure from their constituency, especially in the city where the migrants are overwhelming various services. You know, they're having second thoughts on the sanctuary their policies that they supported when Trump was president. That's Republican Assembly Minority Leader William Barclay. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette program about New York State government, politics. I'm David Gustina. Public schools across New York State have an additional day off from classes after Governor Kathy Hochul signed legislation making Asian Lunar New Year a public school holiday. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas reports the new law is being cheered by the Asian community. Heralded as a significant milestone for the Asian American community, New York's first Lunar New Year holiday will be February 10, 2024. Democrat Grace Lee of the 65th District co-chairs the New York Assembly's Asian Pacific American Task Force. Lee says thousands of families across the state will now be able to celebrate Lunar New Year at home with their kids. I'm Korean and my husband's Chinese. Lunar New Year is a huge holiday for our family. And I could not be more proud to have led the effort this year to pass this bill in the Assembly and the Senate, as well as to attend the bill signing when Governor Hochul made history by making Lunar New Year a statewide school holiday in New York. We are the first state in the country to observe Lunar New Year statewide in all of our schools. And it's uh, just a really emotional moment, I think, for everyone in the Asian community to really feel seen 
to feel heard, to be recognized in this way for the contributions that Asian Americans have brought to the city and state uh, for centuries now. Lee says the law will expose new generations to Asian culture while promoting diversity and inclusion at a time when New Yorkers face discrimination. Wei Qin, president of the Chinese Community Center in Latham, says Lunar New Year is a traditional holiday important to many Asian countries, including China, Vietnam, Thailand, and Myanmar. For us, this is nearly Thanksgiving and Christmas combining in one. It's, it's supposed to be a two-week straight holiday that family get together with days of preparation of the food, the feast, and decorations all in red, all the gifts, all the red envelope, all the firecrackers. That's not cannot be replaced with anything else. So for any of the uh, the Asian uh, immigrant who celebrate this in their childhood, we wanted our children to cherish this heritage and pass it along. So when I immigrant over, I really love everything uh, with the American freedom can offer. However, this is the part when Lunar New Year Day that my children has to go to school that really make me uh, kind of sad. So when the government sign is over, that's really a huge dream come true to me. Chin says the new holiday demonstrates American diversity. Lunar New Year has its origins in an old folk tale of a sea monster that will destroy houses through storms, feasting on animals, and sometimes humans. In the ancient times, people are really, in the beginning, searching ways to to prevent and get rid of this monster. So then the later they discovered, as powerful and violent and scary as this monster is, his eyes uh, are afraid of red color, and his ears afraid of loud voice. So then the people in the Asian time, when the day and the Nian come out, which is Lunar New Year Day, they will uh, burn out firecrackers, make the splash, and then decorate the house and wear red clothes and uh, basically scare off the monster. Gene says plans are being formulated for Lunar New Year Cultural Week. We're going to throw out a large-scale, uh, big-scale Lunar New Year show in the egg aiming to uh, to receive more audience as much as possible to let them share the happiness and then to explore more of the Lunar New Year heritage. Uh, also, the Chinese Community Center also will pair up with uh, schools, elementary schools and high schools, and join their uh, activities. In March, the state Senate approved a measure allowing students attending SUNY and CUNY schools to observe Lunar New Year without fear of being penalized. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. It's that time of year. Fall foliage reports are being issued and colors are beginning to emerge as the days shorten and become cooler. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley with more. The first fall foliage report has been issued by New York's I Love New York Tourism Agency. So far, parts of the Adirondacks, Catskills, Thousand Islands, and the Chautauqua-Allegheny regions are expecting a 10 to 20 percent color change by this weekend, with orange and yellow colors dominating over a touch of red. 
Northeast Regional Climate Center Director and Cornell University Professor of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences, Arthur D. Gatano, is optimistic that the region will see a quintessential fall foliage season. The summer conditions really didn't show anything that would adversely affect the foliage. Now that we're going into the fall season, Really what we're looking at, the first thing that's going to signal the trees to start to change color is is the decrease in daylight. The other thing that really triggers them to really start to change is the cooler temperatures. And, you know, over the next few days, actually over the next week, we're probably likely to see that signaling in temperatures. Days that are still fairly warm and sunny, 60s and 70s, and overnight lows dropping into the 40s. And boy, maybe even up in the North Country seeing some 30s next week is a possibility. So I think that's really going to get the season going. In Vermont, the entire state is in the early stage of color change. Josh Hallman is Forest Health Program Manager at the Vermont Department of Forest, Parks, and Recreation. There's a few different colors that are dominant. When we think of fall foliage, you have your yellows and oranges and reds, or the trifecta that people think of with fall color. And some of those operate a little differently. So, for instance, the yellows and the oranges are compounds that are actually in the leaves throughout the growing season, but you don't see them until the chlorophyll the green in the leaf degrades in the fall, and then those colors are unmasked, if you will. The reds, on the other hand, are generated at this time of year, and oftentimes cool nights and bright sun during the days can help generate more of that red pigment that's in the foliage. That's why those conditions can really help with the vibrancy of the foliage. It has been a rainy summer, and some areas, especially in Vermont, experienced catastrophic flooding in July. Hallman says the excess water affected some, but not all, species of trees. The concern for some trees is that because of all the rain, there have been some fungal pathogens that have wound up on some leaves. And so driving around, you might see some trees that have a little more of a yellow, maybe auburn kind of coloration to the leaves. It's a little different than normal, and those are turning a little earlier as well. They're kind of two different stories. The flooding affected trees directly and immediately, and the long season of rain had impacts on trees beyond those watersheds. So there have been effects from excessive water, but just because we had a flood event doesn't mean that the fall foliage season is going to be a bust. I'm Pat Bradley, WAMC News. And that about does it for this week's show. The Legislative Gazette is a production of WAMC, Northeast Public Radio. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. You can listen to the Legislative Gazette anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Look for program number 2338. And join us again next week at the same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina. Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, uupinfo.org.